Today, um, we've been talking in Ephesians, and, and I'm going to kind of go through that a little bit later on uh, real quickly. But Ephesians tells us to walk worthy, tells us to walk in these different ways. And today we come to walking in wisdom, and I'm calling it wisdom or wisdom, okay? Um, I, that's a little South Carolinian that comes out every once in a while. A little gullet pops out on me. And uh, I hope we've got this film clip. Can we show that film clip? Because I think it illustrates a little bit of the difference. Watch this lady. She is texting on her phone. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's bad. That's bad. And let me just tell you real quickly in short terms, wisdom is focusing on God. And worldly wisdom is focusing on everything else. And she was focused on everything else instead of on what she should have been focused on, right? And fell into, uh, I hope she's all right. They showed it on TV, so I, I usually don't show if somebody has, gets injured severely. But I'm sure she was sore. But, but we get into trouble when we're not focused on what God says. And I know you just sat down, or you've been sitting down, but stand with me. We're going to read just a few verses out of Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15. We're going through verse 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, that your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, that you are the truth, Jesus. And in you reveal God's word to us. You make us understand from Genesis to Revelation. Just as Philip was able to take a passage from Isaiah and explain who you are. So, Lord, all the scripture speaks of you. And we today want to see you. We want to see you high and lifted up. You're seated at the right hand of the Father. We know that you are there. We, we know that by faith. We are standing in your presence by faith. Speaking these words of, of, of supplication. God, we are just begging you to show up and show off through the power of the Holy Spirit. Whom you've sent to be with us, to be in us, to be in the church. So may the Holy Spirit have his way today, Lord. May uh, we not be able to resist the power of God that is present with us. We bind our enemy in Jesus' name. And we cast him out by the name and the authority of Christ. We ask you, Lord, to rebuke Satan for us. So that we might have freedom to see in your word, your truth. And we thank you and ask you all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, y'all can sit down if you want to. Someone said, I'm quoting someone, the demon is a mob and the mob is demonic. In Mark 5, Jesus comes upon this demoniac that nobody could control. And he he's lives among the tombs. They tried to chain him up. He would bust the chains. He's cutting himself. He's doing a lot of things that are crazy. Jesus shows up and he saw him a, a long ways off and the demoniac came running at him saying, what do we have to do with you, son of God? And the Bible says, then he said, don't torment me. And Jesus, because Jesus had said, come out. And, and he said to him, who are you? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. And so the, the demon is a mob, and the mob is always demonic. Yesterday, we saw several mobs descend on Charlottesville. And let me just tell you, they were all demonic. There's no exception to that statement. Because hate is, is only engineered by Satan. It doesn't matter who you hate. Hate is hate. Right? 
Jesus didn't say, you can love your friends and hate your enemies, did he? He said, love your friends and love your enemies. Because even the world can hate its enemies. See, God's wisdom is different from man's wisdom. And, and listen, let me just make myself extremely clear. Racism in any form is ungodly, sinful, and if you are a racist, you are not saved. Period. First John, okay? Well, y'all clap, I'm going to drink. Now, again, I didn't say that. God said that. That's in First John. If you say you're in the light and hate your brother, you're in darkness even to this day. So, but what I would say is those who hate a person are wrong. Those who hate a people group are wrong. And those people who hate people who hate people are wrong. You see, we're called to witness to the Klan and the Panthers. To the alt-right and the liberal. Right? I'm a... Con- I'm a militant, conservative liberal. I'm conservative. I believe the Bible is God's word from Rebus to Revelation, as the girl would say, from the beginning to the end. I think they killed a holy cow to make my Bible cover. I'm just telling you. I believe the book, so I'm conservative. I, I'm also liberal because if you're conservative, then you ought to be liberal and loving and serving and giving to others, Right? And then I, I believe in being militant. I ain't waiting for the devil to find me. I'm out hunting him. Let's go get him. Amen. So yesterday we saw this, a, a large group of people not walking in wisdom. And if we want to step it back, we can go back to city officials and others who did not walk in wisdom. Right? Now, I'm not here to blame anybody. And if you're the guy who made the decision, God bless you. You messed up. I'm, I'm sorry, there's forgiveness in Christ, don't worry about it. But we all do that. We all make decisions that we go, man, did you hear that last, uh, it was the last song I saw before, it says about not living with the regret, that, that the regret is washed away by his word and his blood. And, and we all need to have wisdom. So we need to, first of all, if, we need, if we're going to walk in wisdom, we need to understand what wisdom is. And I, I've already mentioned what common wisdom is, a common understanding of wisdom here in this first verse that we read, verse 15, uh, it, it says, um, sorry, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And we understand that walk doesn't mean like the lady walked and fell into the, but that was a good illustration. But it means the manner of my life, how I conduct my life. I should do that as a wise man, not as an unwise man. Now the world has a wisdom unto itself and, it, and it'll always mess up. The word fool, which would be the opposite of a wise man, the world understands that to mean unintelligent or irresponsible. But God says in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So a wise man first acknowledges there is a God and then gets to know the God who is, right? Hebrews says those who come to God must believe that he is And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so the first step into wisdom is to know know that God is there. But the fool is also morally corrupt. That's in Psalm 14, verse 1, if you want to read it. They do evil. Because man is born spiritually foolish. We are born in our sin. We are born lost. We are born apart from God, separated from God. And the man separated from God can't do anything but sin. Because it is our nature, we our, our every action, you say, well, I've known some good people who were lost. I'm not talking about our standard of goodness. I'm talking about God's standard of goodness. And you know what God's standard of goodness is? Perfection. And the Bible says, and I, I believe it's Isaiah or Jeremiah, 
It says that all my righteousness are as filthy rags in his sight. And I won't even tell you what those filthy rags are, but it's not good. In other words, the best I can do as a sinful man looks like filthiness to a pure, holy, and just God. You with me? Just let you understand. You don't have to always agree with me, but I want to make sure you understand. And so, in Romans 1, uh, and, and that's just a few books before the one we're in. So, if you'll look at it for a minute, because I want to make a point out of Romans 1. And, and I'll jump right back to here, because I don't want to spend too much time here. Um, it's Acts, Romans. Sorry. I have, a, I have a Bible I use in the pulpit because it's bigger and I don't use it all the time. It's harder to turn pages sometimes. Romans chapter 1 and verse, beginning in verse uh, 22. Actually 21. Romans 1, 21. Here's what the Bible says. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking or foolish. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. So when we reject God, that automatically makes us a a fool. Now, I said you were born in that condition. But the foolish man, he mocks at sin. He thinks it's funny. He doesn't think it's that serious. He spreads his foolishness. And that's in Proverbs 14, 8. It says in Proverbs 15, 12, that the foolish man is always spewing out his foolishness. He's always talking out his foolishness. Actually, 15.2. He denies God by his belief and his practices. In other words, you deny God because you don't believe in God. You don't believe he is. And you don't believe that if he does exist, that he cares what you do. When the Bible says that God knows the number of hairs on your head. How many of y'all were at the Passion Play? We did that in a very comedic way. When, uh, when Jesus tells uh, in the play, Pilate's wife, that he knew the number of hairs on her head. She said, no, that's crazy. And then he gave her a number. And she started trying to count the hair. Like, you know, and it sounded crazy. But it was a good illustration of, the, of how much God knows about us. We like to say when, uh, you know, the, King James says when a sparrow falls to the ground. But remember, that was written in 1611 and translated up to modern English. It literally means in Greek, when a sparrow lights on a branch. Every time one of those little songbirds lands on a branch, God knows about it. Yesterday, we went to Chimneys. I guess you all know where that is. And there's a dry creek bed there. And we got down that creek bed. And I'm looking at all those rocks. And my grandchildren are picking up rocks. And I'm picking up rocks. I'm looking at them. And I thought, God knows the exact location. Every one of those crazy rocks. And I mean, there were thousands of them. And God knows exactly where each one is. The, the knowledge that God has should cause us to worship. But the fool denies it. And they deny God by belief and practice. And so, but here's the deal. Foolish people don't hate knowledge. They just have the wrong knowledge. In the, in the 70s, songwriter wrote, you can go to your college, you can go to your school, but if you don't know Jesus, you're just an educated fool. All the knowledge from the beginning of time till 1845, if you represent that by one inch, From 1845 to 1945, it became three inches. From 1945 to 1975, it became the Washington Monument. Knowledge available to be learned. What do you think has done since 1975? Our technological advances, things we can do. Janice and I were talking the other day. She never has known a time without a microwave, a dishwasher. Said her feet have never hit the ground that wasn't carpeted. I used to play on linoleum. I don't know about you guys. 
I'm a little bit older than her. We were talking to a man who was our age yesterday, and he said he went to an outhouse until he was 19 and moved out of his home. He lives here in Virginia. He lives here in Stanton. So you can imagine what's going on. But God, in, in second, well, but God says that that kind of knowledge is, is not what we need because I didn't read one verse out of Romans. I asked you to stay there. Look at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, God's wisdom begins, God's revelation begins with a fear of God. That's where we start. We, Proverbs 1, 7 says that. The beginning of wisdom, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so wisdom starts when we begin to fear God. Now, I will tell you a subtle meaning that is in there and it's in the New Testament. Wisdom is a gift you get at salvation. But you're also to grow in your wisdom. So you can't be wise apart from God. So when God shows up and invades your life, you get wisdom. Because you now have the wisdom of God. You can have the mind of Christ. But you have to grow in that. That's why Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says that your mind is renewed by the washing of the word. You've got to keep that, that growth going on. The scripture says wisdom is centered in our conviction and in what we do with what God has given us. Just, I said I wanted to do this. Going back through Ephesians, you don't have to... You don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians 4, 1, he said, walk worthy of the calling. In Ephesians 4, 2, he says to walk humbly. In, in Ephesians 4, 3 through 16, I just gave you one verse. Now we've got 13 verses. He says we're to walk in unity as a church. Eight months ago, there were two congregations at the same time. And you were asked to come together and stay together. And some people on both sides of that issue still don't like it. But God called us to unity. Right? Amen. Those are brothers and sisters. If you can't get along with your brother and sister, what are you going to do when a rioter yells at you and spits in your face and calls you names? When a Radical Muslim wants to kill you and your family. What are you going to do? If you can't get along with your brother and sister, what are you going to do about loving and witnessing somebody hates you and wants to kill you? You see, we need God's radical love in our life, right? And you only get that as you chase his wisdom. Well, I didn't finish. I just paused there because I thought we needed it. We're to walk separate from the world and in the hands of God in, in Ephesians four seventeen to 32. He spent a lot of time on that too. And then in the last three sermons I've preached here, by the way, last week uh, or whenever I was at church downtown and Austin led us, it was, he led the music down there too. So Austin, I appreciate you, man, up here playing today as well and singing. He says to walk in love in Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. He says to walk in light in Ephesians 5, 8 to 14. And now he says we're to walk in wisdom. So God is really concerned about how we live our life and what we understand, what we believe. So many of us come to church and we listen to the preacher, if you can endure it long enough. And sometimes I go longer than you can endure, I understand. And then you go home and eat your lunch and forget about God. You just look in a mirror and walk away and forget what you look like. The Bible says in James, but when we gaze intently into this perfect law, we see what we really are. We gain Wisdom we get to know. And so God calls us to live like we 
are. 2 Timothy 3.15, and I would encourage you to, to look at it. I'm going to read it as soon as I can find it. But 2 Timothy 3.15 says this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The Holy Spirit has been given to us at salvation, and we need to walk in that wisdom. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Colossians 2.3, 1 John 2.20-21 2, and verse 27. I just don't have time to read all these verses he talks about that wisdom comes with the gift of having Christ in our life. And by the way, I, this is parenthetical to the sermon, but I just want to say it. I, I, I've grown a little tired. I may have said it already, but I'm going to say it again until we get it. I've grown a little tired of us asking people, do they want to go to heaven? That's not what salvation's about. Salvation's being a committed follower of Jesus Christ, no matter what. Heaven's just a bonus at the end. We get it. Big deal. I didn't love my parents so I get Christmas gifts. I didn't treat my parents as my parents so I'd get an inheritance at the end of their life. I love my parents because they're my parents, right? We ought to love God just because He loves us. And that He wants to have a relation with us here and now. Salvation is not something in the sky by and by, it's the here and now. It's how we walk now, and that's what Ephesians, Paul's trying to tell us in this book. Walk in the light, walk in love, walk in wisdom, because it's about a relationship with God in the here and now. And if you're going to have wisdom, you've got to know what God said and what God wants you to know. So we're to grow in our wisdom. 2 Peter 3.18 says to continue to grow in that. In the Beatitudes, he says wisdom, uh, uh, that, that you're blessed if you are humble and walk in wisdom. And, and a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the sin that we see uh, listed in Ephesians 5. But did you see what else Galatians 5 said? I didn't read it then, but I want you to see it now. In Galatians 5, after he lists all these sins, and if you didn't hear it, you can get the app and listen to the sermon, and uh, you might get it. But listen, he says in verse 16 of, of Galatians 5, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, because they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Then he lists the works of the flesh. After he lists the works of the flesh, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And catch verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We're to walk in the Holy Spirit. And if you need more wisdom... James 1.5 says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask of God and he'll give it to you liberally and does not upbraid. When do we play the fool and don't walk in wisdom? And there's three main things that, that I would like to, to, to say. In Luke 24.25, we see where someone did not trust Christ completely. The first thing we do when we play the fool, even as a believer, is when we don't trust God completely. That's easy to do, isn't it? And there is some time when, 
when uh, you won't totally trust who Jesus is and what he can do. In Luke 24, 25, it says, He released this, the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. When we don't trust that Jesus is the Son of God, we're going to act foolishly. And I believe that, that sometimes we don't actually trust God completely for everything, that He can do whatever's needed in our life. We can always look back and see how God led us to this point and what He was doing to get us ready. But we're in the middle of a trial now, it's hard to look forward. And so we've got to build our lives on principles. Secondly, when we're disobedient. In Galatians 3, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you that you began in faith that you have to think you finish in works? When we don't act in faith and we are fooled or, or, or we are disobedient to walking in faith and rather we try to be good for God, we play the fool. And then when we put our hearts on the wrong thing. In Colossians 3.1 it says, Since you then are risen with Christ, set your heart on things above not on things on the earth. That lady walking down the street that you saw at the beginning, her heart was set on whatever she was looking on her phone about and fell into a pit. Those folks that rioted yesterday or protested or whatever word you want to use, their heart is set on an agenda, on a thing, on an idea that's not, not on God and His love and His word, right? And we do it maybe in a smaller way in our lives, but we do the same thing. I'll tell you something else weird about my childhood is, is my dad was, didn't talk a lot. Now, that may surprise you. My mom, she was more wordy, but my dad, he didn't say much. But when he said it, you better be ready for it because it wasn't going to come with varnish or sugar or anything else. It was just going to be the unbridled truth, all right? So my dad was kind of blunt in his speech. And I remember as a little boy, not that it was blunt, but you just wouldn't expect this. And this may explain some of my weirdness. I'm sitting on the bathroom counter. He's shaving, much as little boys do, watching their daddy shave, learning about being a man from their dad somehow. And uh, my dad's talking to me, and he would tell me things that, because he read his Bible every morning and every night. He read through his Bible front and backwards many, many times. And, and he was never a pastor. He had a sixth grade education. He dropped out after sixth grade, worked on the farm, took care of... He had 11 brothers and sisters. His, his mom had died in childbirth when he was little. His dad died when he was 19. And, and so my dad's standing there, and he would tell me things like this. You know, son, the day you're born is the day you start dying, and you're one day closer to your death every day you live. Now, that'll mess you up when you're seven. I'm just telling you. <laughs> It's like, okay, Dad, uh, you know. And he would tell me, God is present in the house of mourning more than at the house of birth, which is out of Ecclesiastes. God is present in our pain and, our, and what we feel. We, we think about Jesus at Lazarus, and Lazarus at the tomb. And, and I guess I learned that from him, and I kind of passed it on because I always... Well, used to say it a lot from the pulpit, and you'll probably hear me say it a lot of times. In a hundred years, everybody in this room is going to be dead. I mean, you just think about that for a second. In fact, most of you, if I asked you your great-grandparents' name, could not answer it. Some of you could, but not everybody. You think about that. Your kids, kids, kids won't even know who you are if Jesus tarries. And yet we think we're all that. We think we're super important, don't we? So I always, I, I say a lot, 
hey, in 100 years we'll all be dead, so what difference does that make? You know, you've got to put things in perspective. By the way, there are a billion Chinese people alive today that don't care. So when something's really ripping you out of the frame, just remember, it'll get better, you're going to die. And right now there's at least a billion people that don't even care. So why, how important is this, right? But I said that over and over a lot. And my son goes into first grade, and on the hundredth day of school, they counted a hundred pennies, they did a hundred this, a hundred that, and their teacher gave them a blank sheet of paper and said, draw what you would look like in a hundred years. <laughs> so all the little kids are drawing, trying to put wrinkles on people's faces, or you know, maybe they're having trouble getting around, something like that. My son drew a guy with his arms folded and X's on his eyes. And wrote at the bottom of the paper, D-E-D, dead. <laughs> now he's only six, so give him a break, all right? So I said, maybe I've said that a little bit too much. But yet that's exactly what the Bible's telling us here, isn't it? Notice what it says there in verse 16. It says to make the best use of our time. Here's something interesting about the word time in our Bibles here. There are two Greek words for time. One is chronos. Chronology, chronograph. It means look at your watch and know what time it is right this moment. That's not this word. This is a word that means an age or an epoch or a time period. Make the most use of your time. What time you have here on earth. Now, when you came in today, you either tripped over or stepped over a white rope around here. If you're sitting on the edge and you see that rope, would you pick it up? with me for a second now this has been done before so if you've seen it don't don't go I've seen that before just just go ahead and pick it up I don't see it in the back somebody in the back grab it it's behind that last pew if you're in if you want to volunteer if you're a kid pick it up now this rope is 200 feet long according to the package okay you can get these at Lowe's but we're going to let it represent eternity all right it doesn't in fact, I divided it, you know, the youngest age estimated of the world by Christians is about 6,000 years. Uh, at, at that rate, one four-tenths of an inch on this is a year, okay, at that, at that rate. But now, oh my goodness, on the other end, I don't know, can you all see that? That black tape there? Hold up against my Bible, you all see that? Let that represent your lifespan. And you're going to live that long, and then you're going to be dead, and you've got eternity in front of you. What matters in eternity is what you do in that much time. Make the most of your time. What are you filling your life with? You can put it down. I know y'all's arms are tired. And hopefully nobody will trip over it going out. What are you doing with your time? You've got a life to live. And we live this life and all of a sudden we let things become important that aren't important. You know, there's a difference between the urgent and the important. There's a little booklet written. I, I bought them and gave them to all the pastors when I first came. Called The Tyranny of the Urgent. We let what is right before us, what is urgent and demanding our attention, to misplace the important and if you concentrate on the important, even though sometimes you have to deal with the urgent, if you concentrate on the important, <clears throat> at the end of your life, you won't have 
so much regret. Someone said, I would hate to climb the ladder of success and get to the top and find out it was leaning against the wrong wall. You see, it's in our advertising, it's everywhere else. You deserve a break. Satisfy yourself. Make yourself happy. Have it your way. You know, do your own thing. We, we hear messages that it is vitally important. We have to do this right now. We got to, you know, what is the crisis of the day? And our media makes their money on telling us what may be urgent but is not important. I promise you, you will hear very little in the news that is important, but you'll hear a lot that's urgent. And it always kills me that a week later, something else is make or break urgent. Last week and this whole week, it's been what happened in Charlottesville. And we've heard a lot about that. The week before, it was Russia. Russia y'all, anybody even remember Russia? We hadn't heard a thing about them. What happened? Oh, wait. Before that, it was, was our president born in America or not? What happened to that one? Before that, it was, who knows? And we go from one urgent crisis to another and we ignore the important. Because there's only three eternal things. God, God's word, and the souls of men. And what is related to those three things are what's important. Everything else is just urgent. And sometimes, as I said, the urgent needs to be done. I would say that expounding upon God's word is important. And last week we had a dear lady who passed out in church. That was urgent. But it was also important in that moment, right? And, and we needed to take care of that. And sometimes, though, we want to just go from excitement to excitement to excitement instead of doing what's important. And, and I love that Vance Hadner said this, to learn the gate of the Galilean. He, he never ran anywhere he went. He walked. And he always got there on time. We always say, oh, if I just had more time. Really? You can expand your day to be longer than 24 hours? Wow, can you show me how to do that? We want to have more time so much. There have been fantasy stories written about somebody finding a watch that if you click the button on the watch, time stood still so you could go do a bunch of stuff and then you could re-click it and time would start back up. We wonder about that, worry about it. Guess what? You've been given the same amount in each day as everybody else. I was watching a TV movie one time about it was about the Amish people, or at least that was the setting of the story. And I don't even remember the whole story. I think it was about them forgiving someone who in their community was burning their barns. But there was an outside reporter or, or detective or somebody came in trying to solve these crimes. And she's riding in the horse and buggy as they were going to the trial of the kid that had burned the barns. And she asked him why and said, because he's still part of our community and we have to support him. And then she asked, why do, you, why do you not go to a modern convenience? And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're still riding this horse and buggy. You get there faster in a car. And he said, would that have added any more time to the day? I have as much time riding here as you do getting there in a car. It just takes more time to get there, but so what? You see, what you fill your clock with is what is... Should be important, but for most of us, it's what is urgent. And we feel like if I could get there faster, 
How many of y'all even remember the 50s and 60s? I don't remember the 50s, obviously. I remember the 60s some because what I'm about to say was still going on, and it still goes on today. We bought, first house Janice and I bought, we we're out looking at houses yesterday, so this may give you some hope. First house we bought ever in our married life, the lady had passed away living there. She, when she heard about a young person in her church that was trying to go to a Christian college or seminary and didn't have the money, would stroke a check and pay for that year for that kid. I mean, that's how kind of, what kind of money she had. And when we moved into her house, she had a ringer washing machine. And one bathroom upstairs and the toilet leaked. Why? She could have had that house rebuilt. She could have stroked a check and been fine, and she never did. I'm not saying that like she was a hero. I'm just telling you, she was still living that way. And in the 50s, it came out, man, you buy this new washing machine, and it'll save you time. You buy this vacuum cleaner, it'll save you time. So now we have robot vacuum cleaners. You don't even have to be there. Just turn it on and leave home. Now you've got all the time in the world. What are you doing with it? Now we're saying we don't have any time. Because we're so busy doing other things with the time we used to use doing these things. Now we're doing something else. You will never have a time when you don't want to fill it with something. What are you filling it with? My cousin Philip had 24 or 5 years. That's all he had. He didn't know that when he was born. He didn't know that when he surrendered to ministry. He didn't even know that until he got close to dying. You see, in Psalm 139, and, and I just want to point this out to you in case you don't know it. Verse 16. I don't know if you know this verse. This verse sets me free to serve God. Because here's what it says. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. Did you know the day I'm going to die is written down in a book in heaven? It's just a fact. It's set. You can't kill me before that day. You say, oh, you'll watch this. Jump up with a gun and shoot me. Okay, guess what? God already had that written down. Say, well, don't go there. You might get killed. No, I won't, unless it's my turn to die. I, I, listen, it'll make you fearless. I've been hit by an 18-wheeler. Opened the door, stepped out, asked the guy, was he all right? He went, me, what about you? I said, yeah, I'm fine. Now, there's a long story involved in that. But I know a man that's tried to commit suicide multiple, multiple times. He's okay now. And he's still not dead. Because his day was written down and it wasn't that day. Your day is coming though. For some of you it may be today, it might be tomorrow, might be next week, next year. And it doesn't matter how old you are, that's just a fact. I'm not saying we don't grieve over death. But listen to Acts 13.36. And you can write that down and you can turn with me if you want. But there's an, this in principle is very important written there in Acts 13.36. Listen to what it says. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep. 
That is the story of everybody's life. You were put here to serve God's purpose, and when he, you have completed the purpose for which he created you, you're going to die. And just in general, we know that with it, it's going to happen within 100 years. <laughs> I've already established that, right? I don't think anybody here is going to live to be 100 and whatever you are now. You might, but I doubt it, unless you're a baby or really young kid in here. That might happen. But from the vast majority of us, within 100 years, we'll be dead. So let me ask you, how are you feeling your days right now? That's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5. He says that we ought to be careful. We ought to be mindful. We ought to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. We have no time to waste because it's worse than you think. The days are evil. You think what happened in Charlottesville was bad. Listen, it's bad all over. There's no safe place on this planet. You can stay home and have a gas explosion if you got gas in your house. My uncle, after his wife passed, he, he was in his 70s, and he had a back sunroom kind of porch. And he was sitting there, and behind his house across the backyard, there was this row of, of apartments in a small brick building. Again, this is the 70s, a long time ago. And he was sitting there one day, he was smoking a cigarette or his pipe or something. And all of a sudden, that building went, boom, and blew up. Somebody had moved out, stolen the gas stove out of it, and cut the pipe and carried it out. And the attic filled with gas, and somebody somewhere lit something, and it went, boom. Now, nobody got hurt. It's not a tragic story, but here's the point. You don't know. You can be riding down the road and somebody hits you. You can have a heart attack and be gone. You can slip on something, break your neck. We don't know. You don't know. And I'm not trying to be morbid. A lot of people say, oh, quit talking about death. That makes me nervous. (laughs) If it's making you nervous, I got some good news for you. There's someone who can give you peace about that. That you know where you're headed, you don't have to worry about it. Because that's what Paul is trying to get us to see here. The days are evil. And this word where he says, uh, uh, in the King James says, redeeming the time, making the best use of time. It's a word that means buy it back for yourself. Buy back the time you have for yourself. It comes in the same word of our redemption that God bought us out of the marketplace never to be sold again. He says, buy back the time of your life without giving it away. Don't waste it. Don't give it over to someone else. Use it for the glory of God. Do you understand that you were born, created, gifted, saved for the glory of God? Not for yourself. So anytime you are living to please yourself, you're, you're creating an idol. I'm not saying you can't enjoy life. I'm not saying you can't have a good time. The Bible says God created all these things for our enjoyment. He gave them to us to enjoy. But when it becomes your God, when it becomes your idol, when you live your life for it, there's a problem. And it's a serious problem because the days are evil. So take full advantage of the day. How many people do you think were banging on the walls of the ark when it started to rain? Because they'd never seen that before, by the way. Until the flood, it had never rained. It just, because the earth was different. I don't want to start doing Christian science for you. But science that is Christian, not Christian science. Um, But I can explain that if you ever want to hear it. But... But the earth was watered, 
by the atmosphere, it was just full of water already. Oh, see, it was so tempting. <laughs> but it had never rained. And for 300 years, Noah's building a big old boat in the middle of nowhere saying, Repent, judgment's coming, it's going to rain. What's rained? Water's going to fall out of the sky. Yeah, chicken little, sure. And all of a sudden, where'd Noah go? I don't know, he walked in, the, in that boat and the door shut behind him. Oh, really? And it, it was, I think it was a couple of weeks before the rain started. And then all of a sudden, a drop hit somebody. What's that? Oh, no. And they're running for the ark, banging on the door. Sorry, we didn't shut the door. We can't open it. It's too late. The time was evil, and they didn't know it. Jesus told the story of ten virgins. Five were wise. Remember wisdom? Five were foolish, and the five foolish didn't have an extra bit of oil to be ready when the bridegroom came back. Some of y'all are running on a little bit of oil. You're running on, well, I'm saved, but you don't ever spend time in God's Word refilling your oil tank. I thought of another illustration I could have used this morning, and I thought of it too late to do anything about it, and you may have seen it or heard of it. Let me describe it for you. There was a professor one time came out, and he put a glass jar, and he took some big rocks, and he put it in there, and he said, is that full? And they said, yeah. And he said, no, it's not. And he got some gravel, and he sprinkled it in there amongst the bigger rocks. He says, is it full? They said, sure. They said, no, it's not. And then he poured it full of sand till the brim. He says, is it full? They said, well, yeah, now it's full. He goes, no, it's not. And he got water, and he poured it in there, and the water filled the cracks. Here's what I would submit to you. All those rocks in that container is junk we put into our life. You see, the next verses that we're going to get to next week say, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And the things that, the junk we put in our life displaces the Spirit. Now, is God that weak? No, God's that gentlemanly. He wants you to empty yourself to be filled by Him. And so when we're buying back the time, we better be being filled with the Holy Spirit as we go. And we ask Him to fill us. He says, I filled you full. The problem is you don't need more of God, you need less of you. I thank God for this water here because I get thirsty quick. My mouth gets dry because I'm nervous all the time. You laugh, I am. But there's nothing in there but water, I hope. (laughs) What is in me that is not of God? That's what I got to get rid of. Somebody asked a famous sculptor one time, how do you make a sculpture of that figure? He said, I'll say an elephant. How do you make a sculpture of an elephant? He said, you get a chisel and a hammer and you knock off everything that doesn't look like an elephant. God's trying to form his image in us and to do that, he's got to get rid of everything that doesn't look like him. The, the psalmist said, let God smite me. It will be a blessing, not a curse. Job, I put myself in God's hands. David, I put myself in God's hands when God's judgment came. Paul said, I asked God to take this thorn away. He said, my grace is sufficient. And he said, so I'd rather glory in my weakness that the power of God can be seen. Are you emptied of self and of your own desires? Jesus himself and John, you, you think I'm talking about, I mean, Jesus was perfect, right? And he was. You can say amen to that. That's fine. In John chapter 9 and verse 4, here's what Jesus said. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Even Jesus was aware of my time is limited. I've got this much time. Now, 
He had some inside dope about when he's supposed to die. Because over and over and over and over in the Gospels, it says he moved out from them because he knew his time had not come. He knew it was not yet time for him to die. The devil started trying to kill Jesus when he was in the womb with Mary. By making him travel from wherever they were to Bethlehem when she was that pregnant. So she'd miscarry and he'd die. And then the king wanted to kill him, and so God sent him to Egypt. He came back, and he maybe had some time of relief, but by the time he started his ministry, everybody was out to get him. They pushed him to the edge of a cliff, and it says he just walked out from the middle of them. They picked up stones to stone him, and he just walked out away from them. And divinely, God protected him so he would not die, because God had appointed the moment of his death, and if anybody could have killed him before then, you and I couldn't be saved. Because someone would have thwarted the will of God. Plus, the way he had to die was for us a very particular way. And by the way, Satan tried to kill him in the garden. When he sweated great drops of blood, we know from modern science that that happens when you're under such stress in your life. Under such emotional stress, the capillaries in your skin start to burst from the pressure, the blood pressure that had built in him and the strain of saying, oh God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the vessels in his body started bursting and the blood was seeping out from his skin. And the Bible says, and the angels came and ministered to him there. God sent the emergency team to keep him alive till the cross. The miracle is not that Jesus died on the cross. The miracle is that he made it to the cross. He was beaten and scourged. And, and Satan was trying to destroy him until that moment that he could cry out, It is finished! Because the time was done. You've got a time. When is that time coming? I don't know. What about the Pharisees in John 8? Jesus talks about them and their time. And what they have to look forward to in Israel, in Matthew 23, Jesus said, How many times would I have gathered you under my wings, but you would not listen? And Israel's been put aside so that the church could come forward. How about Judas? He walked around with Jesus for three years and still betrayed him. I bet he wished he had some time back to do that differently. Peter, 1 Peter 1, 17, Peter talks about, I'm going to exit this world and I've only got a certain amount of time and I know what the, until that day I'm going to keep reminding you of these things. The Apostle Paul in Acts 20, verse 24, he says to the elders at Ephesus that there's a time here appointed and I've got to go and do this thing. The Holy Spirit is leading me. I've got to do it. And I've mentioned David. David understood he had a certain amount of time. He said, teach me to number my days that I can apply my heart to wisdom. Oh, there's that wisdom thing we were talking about last week. Associated with time. So you're just living your life, having a good time, playing around? Or is God the most important thing for you? We're reading this book of Ephesians. There's another place where the church at Ephesus is seen, and it's in Revelation, where Jesus comes to them and he says, I have one thing against you. You're doing a good job. You hate evil. You've done all these things. He said, but I've got one thing against you. You've left your first love. There was a pastor, an African pastor in this country of Uganda, and under the evil dictatorship of Idi Amin, the Christians were being killed and slaughtered and, and murdered. In case you're a young person and you think communism's cool, communism's never worked. It's always been murderous. It's killed millions and millions and millions of people in the world. And that's what was happening, this dictatorship in Uganda. And everybody is dying. And there was a pastor there. 
There's a book called A Distant uh, Peace. And you can read that book. Uh, a Distant Grief, I'm sorry. And, and this pastor would manage to escape. And, and he got out of the country. And he came to America. And one day after he'd gotten here and... His wife said, tomorrow I'm going to go and buy some clothes for the children. And they both burst out crying. Because it was the first time in decades they dared to think about tomorrow. The church in that country went to praying. And God did a great work in that church. And that church today, if you go to Uganda, that church is replenished and multiplied and is still thriving today because under persecution they began to pray and to seek God instead of retaliation. They sought God. They knew their time was limited. They understood, I may not have tomorrow, so I better serve God today. And if you kill me, I'm going to die fighting Satan. But Americans would go, "We'll, we'll, we'll handle that later. No, now's the time. Today's the day. And today's the time to get involved in what's going on. And the church there was amazingly, it it thrived. The church at Ephesus in the middle of the second century disappeared. And from the middle of the second century till today, there's never been a viable church in Ephesus. And the only hint we have is Revelation chapter 2. You left your first love. And I know you think first as in one, two, three. But let me tell you, if there's a number two, then there's competition for number one. When he said you left your first love, he means first in importance, not first in, in, in an order of priority. In other words... Jesus ought to be the most important thing in my marriage. Jesus ought to be the most important thing in my job. Jesus ought to be the most important thing in what I eat. Jesus ought to be the most important thing in how I sleep. Jesus ought to be the most important thing in every relationship of my life. Jesus ought to be the most important thing in how, where I work. Jesus ought to be the most important thing in what house I live in. Jesus ought to be the most important thing in how I enjoy my leisure time. Jesus ought to be the most important thing in everything I do and think about. And if he's not, then I've got an idol somewhere that takes precedence over him and the church at Ephesus disappeared because they left their first love and instead of praying through persecution because there's a lot of persecution in the church there's a lot of error around them they gave into that error they gave into that temptation and they disappeared people want the church to thrive and grow well then you got to pray and you got to be faithful to God and you got to redeem the time you got to buy it back you got to do what God has called us to do you see the next verse lets us know this It says, not only are the days evil, it says, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's how Jesus did it. First of all, he knew the will of the Father in John chapter 5. He said, I do the things that God has sent me to do. I only speak the words he told me to speak. Jesus didn't come of his own accord. He came at the will of the Father. And what he did, he lived his life as an example. So you've got to understand this. What he did, he did was the will of the Father. My question for you is, what is the will of the Father for your job? What is the will of the Father for your mate? By the way, if you're married, that is the will of the Father. I'm going to take a drink of water and then I'm going to say that again. If you're married, look at the person you're married to if they're here. That is God's will for your marriage. 
and for your mate. Period. No question, no exception. Can't say that enough, but I'll quit. What is God's will? How you eat your food. You say, God doesn't care about that, really? Do you remember the sin things we looked at in Galatians 5? Gluttony is a sin. Oh, we got some other things we like to talk about because we're not doing them. But there are some things in there that I don't like to talk about because I am doing them. And I need to not do them, right? As Christians, we like to go out and complain about people who don't sin like I do. If you've got hatred toward any brother, say, well, I don't hate them, I just don't like them. Okay. I'll just let God handle that one. I'm not going to mess with it. Jesus did the will of the Father. Secondly, Jesus did it because he was conscious of the time. I, I told you he was. Let me give you another verse for that. John chapter 7. I mentioned John 5. You can look at verse 19 and 30 in, that, in, in John 5. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and do that. In John 5, 19, Jesus said this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And in verse 30, he said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus did the will of the Father. Secondly, he was conscious of the time. In John 7, verses 6 and then verse 8, he says this, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hear you, but it hates you, but it hates me. Uh, because I testify about this, works are evil. Look at verse 8. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And he knew that if he went, they'd kill him, and he didn't, it wasn't time yet, so he didn't go. And then I want you to see, not only is he conscious of the will of the Father, and I was conscious of the time. He organized his life around the purpose of God. John chapter 4 and verse 34. He functioned on purpose. In John chapter 4 and verse 34. And by the way, that's, that's how you can organize your life. Figure out your purpose and then organize around that. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He understood his purpose. My purpose is to do the will of the one who sent me and do his work. Finish what he wants me to do. When Jesus died on the cross, were there still people sick? Were there still people hungry? Didn't he heal the sick and feed the hungry? So he didn't heal everybody or feed everybody, did he? Were there still dead people? Didn't he raise the dead? Yeah. He did the will of the Father. It's not God's will that we do everything. It's God's will we do something. And that which he has given us to do, we must do. I don't... You, I always love it. You ever see a young family try to get a family picture made with all their kids? And where is mom always looking in the picture? At the kids. Going, look at the camera, look at the camera, look at the camera. Well, they're all looking at the camera and they get the side to the mom. Now, I get that. I understand. We've done the same thing. Instead of looking at the cameraman, let the cameraman get the attention of the kids. We're trying to get the kids to look at the cameraman, but the mom's distracting them by talking to them. Hush, mom, let him handle it. He can take care of it. And we do that in church. Milton, you know what? You need to be doing this and this and this and this. 
Instead of me looking at the Father going, what do you want me to do? Oh, you want me to pray for Milton and bless Milton? I don't know what Milton's up to. I'm just, he happened to be there. So you, you want me to pray for Milton? Okay. Discernment is a call to prayer. It's not a call to do something. The doing is in the praying for each other. Jesus understood the purpose of his life was to do the work of the Father. I don't know why I said all that about Milton because it's not too germane, but it is. And we focus on each other instead of on the Father and his will. You know, Bobby, you ought to be doing this. <laughs> I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but I know what Bobby ought to be doing. I saw a sign one time that said, um, it's not that I'm, uh, that, that I'm always right, it's just I know what you ought to be doing. And that's how we work in church. We ought to turn our attention to the Father and let the Father work with his own children. Right? Okay. Not that, not that we don't have responsibilities, but I'm just saying... We get distracted on the urgent instead of the important. And the important thing is, is my relationship right with God? He talks about taking the, the speck out of somebody else's eyes. said, get rid of that big old log sticking out of your head first. And then you'll be able to help your brother. Because then you'll understand, man, I had a bigger log in my eye than they got a little splinter in theirs. And God's forgiven me of more than they are doing. And I need to forgive them and be forgiving toward them and just be helpful. That's what it says in Galatians. You... When you see a brother overtaking a fault, you who are our spiritual restore such a one, taking heed to yourself, lest you too become a castaway. I want all the perfect people to raise your hand. Good. At least we don't have any liars in here today. Amen. Okay, so what do we do? We redeem the time. We buy it back. We walk as wise men, knowing that the wisdom of God is found in His Word. We study His Word. We know His Word. The wisdom of the world is to live for yourself and to earn your way and to make it that way. But God's wisdom is to seek Him and to know Him because the knowledge of God is the beginning of wisdom. And then we realize we live in an evil time, an evil place. And we've got to buy back our time. And then we only have so much time. Listen, I'm 58. My, my uncles and cousins all had heart attacks in their 40s. The, the, the only birthday I ever did not enjoy was my 25th birthday because I never knew I'd be, I knew that I would never be a young 20, in my young 20s again. And none of them's bothered me since then until I hit 40. And 40 to 50, I held my breath. And after 10 years, I started breathing again. And I saw a cousin of mine who's 10 years older than me. And uh, I think I told you all this, when my dad died, I was still in my 30s. He was in his 40s then. And he was about the same age as, as, as the humorous Louis Grizzard, and he loved to read Louis Grizzard. And so I saw him at my dad's funeral, and he said, hey, did you hear Louis Grizzard died? And I said, I sure did, and aren't you older than him? And he said, shut up, because <laughs> he doesn't walk with the Lord anyway. Because we all have heart attacks in our 40s. He, he didn't have one. I didn't have one. But guess what? I've been a diabetic 50 years, and when doctors look at my records and look at me, they go, excuse me? Because I shouldn't be this healthy. But I know what God's doing. He's doing this. He's touching me. And one day he's going to say, okay, I'm done. He's going to let go. And I'm going to go, I'm just fall apart. That's okay. And I may fall apart before then. He'll let me live. I don't know. But here's my point. I don't know when that day's coming. But it's coming. So I need to live my life with wisdom. I need to redeem the time and I need to understand what the will of the Lord is. 
Because Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, if we surrender our bodies to the living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable unto God, and we are washed by regeneration, we're transformed by the word of God, then we will be able to prove what the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God is. And Paul tells us here in Ephesians, live according to the will of God. You do that by letting God show you your sin, repenting, putting it aside, and letting him make you brand new in the word. That's how you get wisdom. That's how you walk in wisdom. And that's how you make your time count for an eternity. What can you do? Well, I've given you some things already. You ought to know the difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And godly wisdom is in the word of God. Worldly wisdom is about everything else. You need to figure a way to count the days. If you're a parent of a young kid, I heard about a thing, and I shared it with somebody, and they seemed to like it. So it was too late when I learned about it. But get you a jar. Figure out how many weeks it is till your child turns 18. Put that many marbles in a jar, and every Saturday take one out. And all of a sudden, you'll be counting time. Because you get 18 years with a kid to turn them into a godly, productive citizen of heaven and then they're an adult and they're supposed to be on their own according to the world and according to how things work around here that's just one way to count the time you can't put a countdown calendar to your death God doesn't let us know that because then you'd do all kind of crazy things if you knew that but figure a way to count the time not to complain about it but to count it And live every day knowing that today was another day, which means I'm 24 hours closer to the day I die. How did I fill that 24 hours? Did I fill it with God's grace, God's love, God's purpose, God's will, God's work? Or did I fill it with myself? And then just follow Jesus' example. Who knew the will of the Father, was conscious of his time, built his life around the purpose for which God made him to come.